you to go. Good evening again, uh, and welcome once again to the Hellos Church. My name is Bryant. I serve as one of the pastors here. And it is my privilege to lead us in our study of the scriptures tonight as we step back into the book of Ruth. Ruth is the eighth book of the Bible, the eighth book of the Old Testament. It comes right after Judges, which uh, if you've been journeying with us for any amount of time over the last couple of months, you know we've been journeying through the book of Judges. And uh, God in his grace has given us a uh, divine interlude, if you will, during the Advent season. Uh, but we're not that far removed from Judges, because this story actually happens, it unfolds during the time of Judges. We kind of looked at that and its implications, kind of setting it in its context as we started out last week in chapter 1. But if you will, open your Bibles with me uh, to Ruth chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 23, which is basically chapter 2 in its entirety tonight. A couple of years back, I had the uh, opportunity, I don't know if I would call it a privilege uh, when I have the chance to uh, attend a funeral service, but I had the opportunity to attend a funeral. Uh, it was of a, uh, what we would consider probably a young man. Uh, he had some teenage uh, children and a uh, younger son. And uh, as we attended that funeral, I attended with uh, some other pastor friends of mine. We were there in support of some people uh, that we knew and loved who this was a family member of his. So we didn't have any responsibility at the funeral. But uh, in attending together, we had a different uh, perspective, so to speak, than what a minister normally has when attending uh, or being a part of a funeral service. As we went through the funeral service, of course, uh, this uh, man had professed faith in Christ, was a believer, uh, was a member of this church in which we were attending the funeral at. And uh, at one point in the service, I think it was printed in the program, uh, there was a, an open mic time. Now, this is a pretty dangerous thing to do uh, at a funeral. Uh, you don't know who might come up and grab the mic. Cousin Eddie might show up, and who knows what he might say, uh, how appropriate or, more importantly, how inappropriate uh, the comments might be. Uh, but it was a good moment. It was a good moment of sharing. Uh, different people came up and talked about how much this individual meant to them, uh, how loved he was, how celebrated he was, how uh, he was so active and vicarious in his life, and his life had ended so soon, but uh, just how great of a guy he was. And as we moved on through the service, of course, had a time of uh, encouragement and God's word and uh, some more singing, and we parted ways, and we jumped back in our car and began to head back across town. And as we debriefed our experience in that funeral service, we all had this sense of, of longing that something was missing from the service. There was almost a sense of sadness in our hearts, uh, a, a sense of grief, so to speak. And as we talked about the elements and particularly all the stories that were shared in that time of open mic sharing, what, what came, became apparent to us is that uh, even though he had professed faith in Christ, there was more celebrating him and his actions and his efforts in life and not so much talk about the one who had rescued him. You see, the way the, the picture was being painted is that he was the hero of his own story. And in thinking about that, it grieved us because there's an opportunity when we're celebrating and marking the life of someone who has lived in our midst and who has passed on to talk more about Jesus and to celebrate what he has done and the way he has shown his grace in their life and rescued them. And what we walked away is a sense of sadness because it sounded more like he was the hero of his own story. And to many of the people there, he was a hero in their story. 
Well, in reality, the mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ, the mark of a believer, the mark of a Christian should be overwhelmingly that Jesus is the hero of our story. And as we turn our attention to the text tonight, we will be introduced to a character that will be tempted to uh, believe is the hero in this story. But as we open the scriptures time and time again, those that we find, uh, those that we study, the characters, the people in the scriptures, they're, they're never really the heroes of the story. They're a type of hero pointing us ultimately to the great hero who is Jesus. Advent is a season filled with hopeful anticipation. This is a time of year when we often reflect on the state of world affairs and have a sense of longing for that which could or should be better. It was much the same for Israel as they experienced the discipline of a loving God during the time of the judges. They longed for the one who would make things right, the promised Messiah, the true hero. It was this same longing and hope for better days that brought Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, back to Bethlehem. Although Naomi was led from that very place by her husband, Elimelech, to Moab in the hopes of the same, in the hope of better days. Remember, when we opened Ruth's story on last week, this family left Bethlehem, the place known as, or better translated as, the house of bread because there was a famine in the land. And so they left that place in hopes of finding something better, better provision, more provision, or provision, period, uh, in another place. But they sought that refuge not in the Lord their God. Instead of fasting and praying and repenting and asking that God would bring about repentance in their nation, among their people, and bring back the abundance, they left that place seeking refuge elsewhere. They went to the place or the land of Moab. And what this family experienced, instead of something better, what they experienced was lost. Loss and ultimately a sense of hopelessness. But their story did not end in Moab. For God in his providence brought them home. He brought them back to Bethlehem. And in doing so, he met them with grace in the midst of their suffering. Well, as we turn our attention to the text tonight, the first thing we see is that grace is introduced. Why don't you read with me verse 1 of Ruth chapter 2. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. As we step into this next installment of this saga, we're given a glimmer of hope from the very outset. But if we're not careful, we might be led to think that we're about to meet the hero of this great story when in fact he is only there to point us to the true hero. You see, Naomi has come home, in essence, repenting of the direction that she and her family had gone in. They are returning home to Bethlehem, but she doesn't seem to have much to celebrate because of all she has lost in the time that she's been gone. When she left, she was married. When she left, she was the mother of two sons. And when she returns to Bethlehem, her husband and her sons have died, and one of her daughter-in-laws has thought it best to go ahead and part ways. But the author makes note in this very first verse of chapter 2 that all was not as lost as it seemed in that moment. Why? For Naomi had a relative 
on her husband's side. Now, at this point, it's not known, A, if Naomi knows this, knows that there is a relative in Bethlehem on her husband's side, and B, if she actually knows the relative. But this is significant, the fact that there is a relative, because if it were not the case, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, would be completely and utterly destitute. Their lot would be one of suffering and struggle and poverty for the rest of their lives. This is why Naomi attempted to send her daughter's-in-law away in chapter 1. She didn't have any uh, glimmer of a hopeful future, anything that she felt like she can offer them except for a life of poverty and suffering. And so she said it would just be better for us to part ways and go on with the rest of our lives. Can you imagine the, the, the depth of despair Naomi must have felt to come to this place? The only people that she has left in the world and what she feels like is better for all of them is if that is that these two ladies, her daughters-in-laws, uh, Orpah and Ruth, that they would just leave her alone. Now, Orpah, she listened to Ruth. She said, I, I think you're on to something. As hard as this is, as much as I love you, as much as we have been through together, it would probably be better for me to go back home to my family and continue on with my life. And so Orpah, she left. But Ruth... Ruth, her other daughter-in-law, made the more difficult or the harder decision. She chose to stay with Naomi, believing that it was the right thing to do, that it was right to stay with her mother-in-law. And so, as the scene closed last week, they arrived in Bethlehem together. Naomi absolutely convinced that the sovereign God of Israel was against her, that he had afflicted her and left her hopeless. But I think a gospel reality is at work in Naomi's life, much as it is in our life when we are enduring trial and when we endure suffering. I think Paul writes it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 9. He says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, when, when I matured, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am known fully. Naomi and Ruth are only able to see the part of their story from their perspective. But God is weaving together a beautiful tapestry with the thread of their lives. And he shows us a glimpse of what he is doing and what he is about to do in, the, in this opening verse. Well, we're introduced to this relative. His name is Boaz. And in so, as we are introduced to him, he is described as a prominent man of noble character. Another translation would describe him as a worthy man, and other translations still would describe him as a man of great wealth. Uh, Boaz was the kind of friend you wanted to have. If you didn't have what you thought you needed, Boaz probably, if he didn't have it, he had the means to get it for you. In this, 
in being described as a, a man, a prominent man of noble character or a worthy man or a man of great wealth. This is essentially the same descriptor that was given to Gideon, one of the judges of Israel that we looked at. He was, he was called a mighty man of valor or a valiant warrior, but when he was called that, he, was, he didn't look anything like that. He was hiding from the enemies of Israel. Now, we don't have any, any indication that Boaz is a military man, though he could have been. But what is indicated is that he is an upstanding man of faith in his community. An interesting contrast to the character of Gideon from the beginning of his story to the very end. Notice also that the author is careful to help us understand this relation, how Naomi and Boaz are related. He is not just Naomi's relative, but he is, in fact, her husband's relative. Now, why is this important? Well, once a, man, a woman in this cultural context was married, she was essentially cut off from her family as it relates to any type of financial responsibility. She was now, she now belonged to her husband's family. And Naomi, along with Ruth, now finding themselves motherless widows, they are essentially left without anyone. They are alone in the world, as it were. But Boaz, makes me think about the words in Ephesians 2 where it says, but God, being rich in mercy. But Boaz, through Boaz, God is personifying his grace in the midst of Naomi and Ruth's suffering. You see, God in his sovereignty had made provision in the law for people who found themselves in destitute situations like these women. They were poor and needy. They were down and out. What God allowed in the Levitical law was for a male relative to act as a deliverer or a rescuer of near relatives who were in need. This is known as a kinsman redeemer. Introducing this fact, this man, this relation, this relative, introducing this fact at the forefront sets the stage for what's about to unfold for what God is about to do in the lives of these women. As the passage continues, not yet knowing about Boaz, we see that Ruth is longing for grace. We see grace is longed for. Look with me in verse 2 through 7. It says, Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, Would you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, Go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. Boaz asked his servant who was in charge of the harvesters, Whose young woman is this? servant answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little in the shelter. Now, we don't know much about the nature or closeness of Ruth and Naomi's relationship, but we can presume that it's a pretty deep bond just by the fact of all they've gone through. What exactly led Ruth to make the kind of commitment that she did to cling to or to stay with, to not leave her mother-in-law, we don't, we don't really know. 
perhaps over the years of having been married to her son and uh, even clinging or continuing with Ruth after he died, she had grown to learn more about or to believe in or, or trust the God of Israel uh, just being in proximity with this family. Uh, maybe in trusting in him, she saw the contrast between the God or the gods of Moab that she grew up with. Uh, perhaps it, it was just overall better for Ruth to stay with Naomi for whatever number of reasons. Maybe if she went back to her family, she might have been sold into some form of slavery. She might have mis been mistreated. She just decided, maybe it's better that I just stay with Naomi. And perhaps she felt sorry for Naomi, that she's an older woman, and perhaps as a much younger woman, I can be of some help. I can ease her suffering in this world if I were to stay with her and help. Whatever the case, Ruth was in it with Naomi now. But Ruth isn't just sitting around waiting on handouts. She's not waiting on somebody to take care of them. She is a woman of initiative. She wants to do what she can to improve their situation. She longs to find favor as a foreigner in this land. Now, don't miss the fact that as we read through this chapter over and over again, it's going to be brought to the forefront that Ruth is a Moabitess, that she is from the land of Moab, that she is not an Israelite, that she is a foreigner, that in essence, she does not belong. She doesn't have the same rights and privileges of Israelites, and she knows this. But she longs to find favor, as she says in the text, as a foreigner in Israel. She is longing for grace. She, she, she submissively asks her mother-in-law, Naomi, if she can go to work, gleaning in the fields as, as the barley and the wheat are harvested. Now, this is a process that is another gracious provision of God in the law that as the Israelites went out to harvest their fields, anything that was dropped or left behind along the way, they were not to come back and get it. And as they harvested the field, and these, these are massive fields. I'm not, I'm not talking like five or ten acres. I'm not talking a couple of hundred acres. I'm talking like plantation size. These are thousands of acres. This is a giant field that wheat is growing up for in for the town. And as the fields are harvested, the law makes a provision for those who are poor and needy in that the fields are not to be harvested all the way up to the very edges, that some, something is supposed to be left in the field to be harvested. And those things that drop along the way as the grain, the barley, uh, or grapes, or uh, olives, as they are harvested, those things that fall on the ground or are left behind. They're not to be doubled back and picked up. Why? Because this is God's provision. This is God's provision for those who find themselves in the situation that Ruth and Naomi are in. They are without any provision in the land. And this is God's way of providing for them out of the abundance of what he is providing for his people. Now, in thinking about this and thinking about how God made provision for the poor and needy in Israel, I'm challenged and convicted. Like, how much do I think about the poor and needy when I'm considering my family budget, when I'm considering our personal finances? As a faith family, we want to steward the resources that are entrusted to the Hallows Church through your sacrificial generosity to further the gospel in our city and to the ends of the earth. And we also want to use those resources to support those who are poor and needy as we have opportunity to. But as we do that as a faith family, should we perhaps not consider how we do that in our own lives? I think about Chris. 
I think about Michael. I think about Philip. I think about Sydney. These are all people who are like Ruth and Naomi. People who I see on a fairly frequent basis as I'm walking to the QFC, as I'm walking to the Walgreens in my neighborhood. And they're taking initiative. They're, they're trying to improve their situation. They're out selling real change newspapers. Now, I've bought enough of the newspapers to know that I'm not going to read them. And so when I can, I like to make a donation uh, because the newspaper is just going to end up, I don't know, in the car or in the stroller or Jackson's just going to end up ripping it up all over the place. So I'm, I, make, I make an offering, so to speak. But when I think about these people and think about how God made provision for the poor and needy in Israel, I begin to wonder, should I be considering how I can leave something for them to glean out of the abundance that God has provided me and my family with? And I wonder if there might be people that God would bring to your mind that you perhaps know are poor and needy, who are, who are really striving to improve their situation. They need help. And maybe God has blessed you with enough abundance that they might glean from the blessing that he's brought into your life. Something to consider. So Ruth sets off to work. She's heading into the harvest field, and by some stroke of luck, as some might say or think, she ends up in Boaz's portion of the field. If you look back at the text, it says that Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters, and she happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, it's described as the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, again, because these are this is a massive harvest field. And the way it's divided up is people in the community are given stewardship, um, somewhat ownership over portions of the land. So as the land is harvested, this portion of the grain would go to a man like Boaz, and another portion would go to someone else. Now, the author uses this language that it would happen that Ruth would end up in Boaz's portion of the land so as to speak of coincidence or happenstance or what we might call luck. Ruth was lucky enough after going through all that she had been through with her mother-in-law in Moab, losing her husband, she was lucky enough to stick it out with her and come back to Bethlehem. And Ruth was lucky enough in being ambitious to set off and get into the harvest field uh, to glean some crops. And she was just so happened lucky enough through this grand coincidence to end up in this, in this massive field, to end up in the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz. And we see later in the text that Boaz just so happened to show up from Bethlehem that day in the field and notices Ruth. Now, when I put it that way, it sounds pretty ridiculous, right? But that's a lot of luck, and that's a lot of happenstance. And I believe the author gives it to us that way to demonstrate the absurdity of depending on coincidence or luck. No, it is not luck. Simply put, Ruth did not coincidentally end up in Boaz's portion of the harvest field. This was orchestrated by God. So I want to challenge us in our thinking as biblical Christians. Do we really believe in coincidence or luck or fortune, as some would call it? Or do we embrace the reality that we serve and worship the sovereign God of the universe? Now, I think about my own life's journey just over the last four and a half years. I moved to Seattle to be a part of a different church planting work that didn't come to fruition in the way that I or the team that I had joined had 
planned or hoped that it would. Shortly after moving to Seattle, uh, by some crazy coincidence, I met my wife, Michelle, even though she was living on the other side of the world. Um, even though things didn't come to fruition with the church planning work, that uh, the way that we had hoped to, we ended up getting married at the end of about a year's time. Uh, we were lucky enough that four months into marriage, not according to our family planning plan, we were having a baby. And so with that, we knew uh, with where we are in life, we need to be a part of a more solidly established faith family. And so we came to the Hallows Church. Now, was all that really luck? Did we just so happen to end up at the Hallows Church? Did we just so happen to end up meeting and just so happen to get married? No, we don't believe that's the case at all. We believe that God was sovereignly guiding and orchestrating every moment, every season, every step of our life to bring us to the place that we are for his glory. And we believe it because we're experiencing it for our good. And God has done that in our life. He's done that in so many of your lives. And it's not just so many. He's done that in every one of our lives if we're only willing to acknowledge his providential hand, much like we see him doing in Ruth and Naomi's story. So let's, let's part ways with this language of luck and coincidence and fortune and acknowledge the one who, according to Romans 8.28, he is the one who causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Well, while Ruth is at work, Boaz happens to show up on the field. We get a glimpse into his character. He greets the harvesters in his field with a blessing. The Lord be with you. And they respond in kind. The Lord bless you. Course. They want the Lord to be with them because they're going out to harvest grain and, and they say the Lord be with you because as they harvest this grain, they'll be blessed and Boaz is being blessed because he's able to make money off the grain. But I think this says something about who Boaz is and his relationship to those who work for him. Let's just say any and all of us would love to have a guy like Boaz as your boss. He's not only godly, but he's attentive. He notices Ruth perhaps because she's a Moabite woman and maybe she stands out because of her physical characteristics. Maybe Ruth literally just doesn't look like everybody else in the field. Maybe it's a situation where one of these things is not like the other. But maybe Boaz is attentive enough that he knows the people who work for him. He knows those who harvest his section of the field and he notices that there's someone new among them. He's attentive. He's godly. And as he notices her, and I think this says something else about his character, he speaks directly to Ruth. He first inquires of his servant. He says, who is this, who is this Moabite woman? Who, who is this woman? Where does she come from? And the servant replied, she's the, the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvester? She came, and she's been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little in the shelter. You see, Ruth was there because she longed for grace. But as she set out to start a new life in a new place among a new people, and quite frankly, under the lordship of a new God, she longed for grace, and what God does is begin to bless her and grant the longing of her heart through this man who she just meets. And she has no idea of who he is. She be he begins to bless her through Boaz. 
Let's continue to see how he does that as we see how grace is experienced in the next couple of verses. Chapter 2, verse 8, going through 10. It says here, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field, and don't leave this one, but stay here, close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting, and follow them. Have I ordered the young men not to touch you? The answer there is yes. When you're thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She fell face down, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor with you? So that you notice me, although I am a foreigner. Now, I wonder if Ruth truly expected to find favor as she went into the field that day, or what she expected that favor to look like. Maybe for her, knowing that she has no rights and privileges, uh, she can't be a harvester. She doesn't have that right and privilege, but she's in a position where she has to glean what's left of the harvest. She's a foreigner. She's a woman. She is not married. Uh, She is pretty much helpless and merciless. And remember now, this story is happening during the time of Judges. Like, this is a very scary and dangerous time in Israel. And here Ruth is essentially a helpless woman trying to do her best to to provide for her and her mother-in-law, and she goes into this field. So maybe for her to find favor, it just looked like not being mistreated or abused or attacked or sidelined as she was a foreigner. But what she experienced had to be far above and beyond her expectations. First, Boaz speaks to her directly and not through his servant, which perhaps says more about his character. He doesn't need to speak through a mediator. And then he invites her to stay in his field and glean there while ensuring her safety. You see, when Ruth and Naomi come back because their husbands are dead, they have no leadership. They have no provision. They have no protection. And what Boaz does in this moment is provide everything that Ruth is lacking. He gives her leadership, telling her exactly what to do and where to go in his field. He gives her provision because he says, follow after my harvesters and have access to anything in my field. Stay here and stay where they go. And then he gives her protection. He says, I've already told the young men not to touch you. Everything that she is lacking As she comes back to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, this man, Boaz, sees that she doesn't have it. And in God's grace, he begins to provide it for her. I see Boaz as a type of Christ here. A type of Christ in that, again, he's not the hero of this story, but he's pointing us to the hero of the story. It reminds me of what Jesus says of himself in John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. He says, I am the gate. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Will find what they need. There is safety in this place. A thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come so that they might have life and have it in abundance. We see here in Ruth's story as well as in ours. That grace isn't experienced in circumstances. 
grace is not experienced if our circumstances improve, and grace is, is no less experienced if our circumstances worsen. Grace is not experienced through our circumstances, but it is experienced through a person. And in this story, Boaz is this person, but he is pointing us to a greater person through which all of us experience the grace of God, and that is Jesus Christ. Ruth is quite perplexed at this moment. She can't quite wrap her mind around why she has been being extended such kindness and favor by this man, especially since she's a foreigner. She's a least likely suspect. Now, isn't that us when we think about who we are, where we've been, what we've done, and who God is, and the kindness that he extends toward us in Christ? But this is his grace. It's his unmerited favor extended to us. See, grace has everything to do with God. It has nothing to do with who we are. It has nothing to do with where we're from. It has nothing to do with what we are able to do. Grace has everything to do with God, and the only part of the equation we have in grace is that we are the recipients or the objects of God's grace. But how does this grace come to Ruth? I think this grace comes to Ruth the same way that grace comes to us. Let's look at it in the text beginning at verse 11 and see how grace comes through faith. So as Boaz answered her, everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land, how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. My Lord, she said, I have found favor with you, for you have comforted and encouraged your servant, although I am not like one of your female servants. Here it is again. She knows who she is, that she has no right, but she still experiences this kindness. I believe Ruth's commitment to Naomi in chapter 1, to stay with her, to cling to her, to not leave, was an act of faith. Faith that it was the right thing to do. Faith that the God of Israel would bless her for it. But also faith that the God of Israel, this God she is now trusting and believing in, would judge her, curse her, hold her accountable if she did not fulfill this promise. I believe faith is the vehicle on which the grace or the favor that Ruth has experienced has come into her life. Let me say that again. I believe that faith is the vehicle on which the grace or favor that Ruth is experiencing, faith is the vehicle that it's come into her life on. And the same is true for us. You see, grace was long at work in Ruth and Naomi's story. Grace was at work when Elimelech led his family away from Bethlehem. Grace was at work when Elimelech died and Naomi had to bury him. Grace was at work when Ruth married Naomi's son. Grace was at work when Ruth had to bury her husband. And grace was at work when Ruth made the commitment and said, Naomi, I am not going to leave you. Don't send me away. I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to stay where you stay. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. Grace was at work in the midst of all of that. But as Ruth took steps of faith, 
she began to step into the providential grace of God in her life, and she began to experience it more and more and more. Grace was at work all along. And I think Paul frames it for us in this way when we think about how grace is at work and how we begin to step into it and access it and realize it when he writes this in Ephesians chapter 2. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. To Boaz, her faith perhaps resembled that of Abraham. When God came to Abraham in Genesis 1, as it's recorded, and said, The Lord said to Abraham, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And Abraham went. This is exactly what Ruth does. Boaz says to her in this direct conversation, listen, everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother and native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. Boaz essentially says, I've heard about everything. I've heard about what you've done. Now, remember when, when Boaz asks his servant, who is this woman? His response is, she's the Moabite woman who's come back to Bethlehem with Naomi. It wasn't unknown in this town who these women were. It wasn't unknown as to who Naomi was because when she left Bethlehem, she was full. She was married. She had children. And when she comes back, she is a widow. She is a motherless widow who is coming with her widowed daughter-in-law. They know who Ruth and Naomi are. The town is talking about them. And so when Boaz asks, who is this, the way she's described is the woman, the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. Now, I think this is of particular interest to Boaz because we've already been shown in the opening verse of this chapter that he is a relative of of Naomi's husband. So he has a special, a special interest in Naomi. He has a, a vested interest in what happens to these women. And so it would just happen that he would meet Ruth in his field. This didn't just happen. This was providentially orchestrated by God. And he says, I've heard about you and the faith that you've demonstrated. And Ruth, as you wonder, as you're perplexed why this kindness has come to you, why you've received this grace, it's come to you because of the grace, of the faith you have demonstrated. Not because of your faith, but by your faith. Faith is the vehicle that this grace has been experienced in her life. And what we see in the following verses is a gracious provision. Look at it with me in verse 14. It says, at mealtime, Boaz told her, hey, come over here. And have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters and offered, and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. When she got, when she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her even gather grain among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Don't make fun of her. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. This is about four gallons or 30 to 40 pounds of barley. She picked up the grain and went into town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. 
Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you gather barley today? And where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. And Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with and said, I don't know, the man, name of the man that I worked for today is Boaz. Ruth has no clue as to who Boaz is. But we're going to see in a moment that things are about to change. Now, there's a gracious provision in these verses we just read, and that comes through Boaz as he invited her, graciously invited her to join him at the table to eat with the harvesters. Again, because she's a farmer, a foreigner, because she is a Moabite woman, because she is of the poor and needy in Israel, this is a place where she didn't belong or didn't have a right to be. And as she sat at the table and ate, she ate until she was satisfied and... There were leftovers, enough leftovers to take home and share with Naomi, her her mother-in-law. It reminds me of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread in Mark 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish in Mark chapter 8. Now, the scripture says in Mark chapter 6 that the number that Jesus fed with these two fish and five loaves of bread were about 5,000. And particularly, the number was 5,000 men. So using my sanctified imagination, as my pastor growing up would say, I just kind of threw some numbers around. If half of those men were married, um, that's another 2,500 people. So we're up to about 7,500, right? Uh, I'm I'm a minister. I'm not a mathematician. Um, And then if those who are married had at least one child, that's another 2,500 people in the equation. So let's be conservative and say there's about... 10,000 people. And in this miracle, Jesus blesses and breaks this bread and this fish, and he feeds everybody. And everybody doesn't just get fed and has enough to make it back home, but they are full. They eat their fill, and as the disciples go around, they gather up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. When Naomi sits down at this table, she has the opportunity to eat until she is full, until she is satisfied. And the leftovers, there are enough for her to take home to Naomi, her mother-in-law, probably for her to eat until she's satisfied. Boaz also graciously provides for Ruth in the harvest effort. He commanded his harvesters to let her gather grain from the bundles as well as for them to pull out some stalks from the grain for her to harvest. Reminds me of how Paul frames it in Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond what we could ask or imagine. Ruth was just hoping for some favor, to find some kindness, to find some people who wouldn't harass her, would let her tag along and glean uh, from behind them as they harvested the barley in the field. But what she experiences is this overwhelming, lavishing grace of God as it comes through this man, Boaz. This is God's gracious provision in her life. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, is blessed as a result of it. But lastly, because of this encounter with this man, there is a grace-filled hope in these women's lives. Look with me at verse 20. It says, Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued The man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Ruth the Moabite said, well, he also told me, stay with me, 
Stay with my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, not trusting the men, my daughter-in-law is good for you to work with female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. So Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished. And she lived, she clung, she stayed with her mother-in-law. Now, as Ruth is just talking about her day and telling Naomi, her mother-in-law, what the deal is. Yeah, I went into this field and I met this guy, Boaz, and man, he was really kind and just like really set us up. So let me just say this. It is not customary that gleaners would come home with 30 pounds of wheat from the field that they have gleaned. This is a very, very special case. And Naomi sees this and she is blown away by the, by the, the favor, the grace that Ruth has experienced. And she wants to know, who is this? Like, who took notice of you? And said, well, it's, it's a guy named Boaz. And perhaps for the first time in many, many years, Naomi, this woman who came back to Bethlehem, hopeless, destitute, convinced that God was against her when she heard the name Boaz for the first time in many, many years, she was able to hope once again. Because this isn't just any man. This isn't just any uh, landowner. This isn't just anyone who has a portion in the harvest field. This is one of our family redeemers. This man has the ability to change our lives. And in this, Boaz is a type of Christ. Because, again, he is not the hero of the story, but he is pointing us to the greater hero. I'll, I'll, I'll spoil it. I know we have two weeks before we get to the end of the book, but uh, Ruth and Boaz end up getting together. Sorry. <laughs> they get married, and they have a baby. His name is Obed. Obed, later on, has a baby. His son's name is Jesse, and Jesse has a bunch of boys. But the most prominent of them is a young boy by the name of David. And David becomes king of Israel, is the greatest king of Israel. But he himself, much like his great-great-grandfather Boaz, he is a type of Christ. Because there is one coming through this family line who will change everything for everyone. This is the hope and the anticipation of Advent. It reminds me of what Paul writes to his young pastoral uh, protege, Titus, in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. He says, For the grace of God has appeared. It has already appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godliness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing, the second appearing, by the way, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem, to purchase us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Yes, Boaz was was Ruth and Naomi's kinsman redeemer, but Jesus is ours. And as we journey through this Advent season, we reflect on the reality that he has come 
the one who is able to change everything, the one who is able to step in and show grace to us in the midst of our suffering and living life in a broken world, no matter how intense or unintense your suffering is, we are suffering under the curse of the fall. But Jesus is able to step into our suffering and extend grace. We access that grace by faith. There might be some of you here today who, I don't know, are waiting on God to make his move in your life. If God would just make his move, then I would respond. I would, I would say yes to him. I will be his. Well, the reality of the story of the scriptures, especially according to Titus chapter 2, is that the grace of God has appeared. God has already made his move The grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. The grace of God is evident all around us. The the, the things you are experiencing in your life, the good things, they're not just luck. They're just not uh, fortune. They're just not coincidence. That is the providential hand of God extending grace. His grace is all around you. But what he invites us in order to experience it more fully, more perfectly in this life and in the life to come, he calls us to respond to him by faith. So some of you here today, that's what you need to do. No longer wait for God to make his move. Know that God has already moved. He took on flesh. He emptied himself of his divinity. He was absolutely 100% God in his character, but he emptied himself of his divine power, and he lived on this earth even as you and I. The miraculous, powerful, supernatural things Jesus did in his life and ministry here on earth, he did that by the same spirit that he gave us. He did it by the Holy Spirit. That's why communion with the Father was so important. He was dependent on his relationship with the Father and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to do all the things that the Father had sent him to do. He was our example. But he lived in humble perfection. Humble to the point of being willing to sacrifice himself, die on a cross for the glory of God, but for the good of mankind. Any who call upon his name, those who trust in his name, might experience his grace, the presence and the power of God in their life, both now and forever. So that's you tonight. The invitation is simple. Respond to the grace of God as it has come, as he has come. And for the rest of us, as we reflect on this Advent season, So we think of all it means, the fact that Jesus has changed everything for us who trust in him. We have the opportunity to come to the table, remembering that the body of Jesus was given and the blood of Jesus was shed, that we might have forgiveness of sin, that we might walk in newness of life, that we might more fully and perfectly experience the grace of God on a daily basis and being empowered by his spirit, we, we might go out and proclaim his goodness, his grace, his kindness to those who are still yet far off. Announcing this glorious news that through Christ you can be brought near. You see, we were all foreigners. None of us had a right to the tree of life. We were all cut off. We were all Ruth. But Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, made it possible for us to share once again, in the life and eternal life with God through Christ. 
And so tonight, as we respond, we do so by coming to the table. And we'll continue to respond by lifting our songs of praise and worship to our God because he is good. Amen? We respond to him in that way because he has already demonstrated his grace and his kindness to us. And so in these next few moments after I pray, we'll have opportunity to come to the table, to respond in that way, and to lift our voices as we sing. Advent is all about Jesus coming and changing everything. For those of you who are waiting for him to make his move, don't wait too long. Because when he makes his move again, that's going to be his second appearing, his second advent. And then it will be too late. We are eagerly awaiting, longing for, anticipating that. And so today is the day of salvation. Won't you pray with me?